0: Acts 11, Gentiles, it's more mind-blowing than you knew. And this has been easily the most mind-blowing study that I've had an experience with in a very, 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 very long time. And today's sermon is much more teaching than it is preaching. And it's not always the case, but this time it really will be. Uh, And it is so deep and so mind-blowing. We'll talk about it tonight, and and we'll even do it on Tuesday night with some Q&A, because I'm sure all of that will come up as well as we jump into this. But it's also a good time for this, because Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 are both about the same story. It's the story of Cornelius. In Acts 10, we see the narrative, as Luke lays it out, of the events as they unfold that allow God to coordinate both the, the, the gentiles and the jews to come to such a place that they would actually allow gentiles into the covenant and that he would convince the jews and and, and also attest to the gentiles and also supernaturally orchestrate all of it that all happens in act chapter 10 where we we learn of cornelius and in those in the house now here's interesting in acts 11 we now will pick up on this with peter going back And discussing this with the church in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, and as he discusses it, you'll see that the Jewish component of the church that is most concerned about Jewish customs, well, the whole church is Jewish, by the way, except for Cornelius and his household at this point, but but the Jewish component of the church has a, a very scrupulous concern about was this right and what did you do and did you eat with them and did you walk into their their soil what is it that you did here and here's what's interesting in acts 11 there's something that's never mentioned and it's the name of cornelius as he tells the whole story it's only gentiles as they are referred to or as the uncircumcision uh or as the nations and as we we look at this join me now in acts chapter 11 starting in verse 1 the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers (laughs) criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. By the way, as a side note, Ezekiel says exactly the same words. When when he is being called to his prophetic journey, Uh, the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. Now, again, Cornelius' name is is being, in in a sense, removed from this to not make this a big deal about any one particular person. Luke is trying to help us understand this is about the bigger picture. This is about Gentiles, the nations, the uncircumcised themselves. Anyway, we went into the man's house. Verse 13, he told us, How he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, now he's gone there. The Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so we have a a unique opportunity preaching through a book like this that we've already gone through all of the details Of the story, and now we have it retold, and it gives us a chance on this Sunday to get into the mindset of this interaction between Peter and the Jewish Christians, which are basically all the Christians except those that were just baptized in Caesarea, all the Jewish Christians, and how they made sense of this interaction. And first, I want to talk about how a Jew made sense of a Gentile. But we'll also look at how a Jew made sense of God himself. And even how a Jewish Christian would have made sense of God himself. I will be looking at a lot of scriptures today. And I'll put all these notes up on our website. They'll all be there. I want this to be driven home. I want this to be a time of remarkable maturity for all of us as a body. To appreciate the fullness and the story behind the story here. Now, to a Jew, and especially Paul, who who quotes quite a bit uh, from having been influenced, they would have been very well acquainted with what is known as Second Temple literature. Second Temple is is, is everything from the the time of the the Second Temple around, you know, kind of 400, 500 B.C., all the way until the present, until 70 A.D. That is the Second Temple. Uh, Throughout that whole period of time, There's a massive body of literature that besides the Bible that they would have all read Uh, in in coming days and weeks. I'll reference some of that a bit more for right now, though. I will I will just look at the Bible as we really kind of get our minds blown even by that. But but one thing just in terms of um, terminology that's helpful for us is that Gentiles are also referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the nations so for example when Jesus says go and make disciples of all nations that would have had to the Jewish ear very much a a flavoring of Gentiles even in it and would have been a mind-blowing commission from Jesus before he ascends into heaven Uh, but whenever you see the nations Old Testament or New know that that's an inflammatory phrase to say the least Uh, even the idea that To Abraham, the great promise of God given in Genesis 12, that you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to all nations. Very big deal, because that is outside the paradigm of the Jew, that Yahweh, our God Yahweh, would somehow have something to do with all the other nations, And all of that has everything to do with how they thought of the nations and how they thought of Yahweh and how they thought of the gods that those other nations worshipped. So this is what we're going to get into to be able to understand that a little bit better to appreciate what a big deal it is for Peter to cross the threshold onto Gentile soil and talk to people that are not of the people of Yahweh. Not the allotment to Yahweh, not the inheritance of Yahweh, but yet another nation. But before we can get into the nations, there's one more thing that has to be understood from a Jewish mindset at this time, and it is the nature of God Himself. And all of this is kind of, you know, buckle your seatbelt type stuff. Because this stuff is is really quite remarkable. And stuff that we've not really talked about a whole lot as a church. But it it has everything to do with why the Gentiles were so reviled. It's not just because they had a different look about them. Or different hair or skin color, ethnicity, traditions, diets even. It goes so much deeper. So, so, so much deeper than than, than even that. So, again, to to first appreciate this, we've got to start with God. And, and the first thing that I want to understand is not just God, but God and his divine counsel. And as we appreciate God and his divine counsel, there is a, a, a whole body of scripture throughout the old covenant. Uh, oh, it, it, it appears some 75 times the idea of the counsel of God. We looked at it a little while ago when we talked about the commissioning of Paul. And as Paul was taken up to the third heaven, according to his own testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, we, we saw that that's what prophets did when they were being commissioned by God. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, verse 18, Who among the false prophets have stood before my divine counsel? Who have received or seen the word if they've not been before that divine counsel? Now, Sometimes you might hear the word council in your Bible and think that it's talking about C O N C O U N S E L. If it doesn't say that, then it's not that. If it says C O U N C I L, then it is a council as though it were like a, a Sanhedrin or or some sort of a kind of a, a body of, of, of legislators of some sort or another, with Yahweh, the most high God, presiding over that. And so, for example, in Psalm 82, it says, God presides in the great assembly. God has taken his place in the divine council. My uh, ESV Bible says here, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. All right. What in the world, right? What do you mean in the midst of the gods? Are there like a bunch of other gods? Does the Old Testament believe in polytheism? Is it not a monotheistic religion? What is it that is in view here? Now, here's what's important. Is that the word Elohim, which is used for the very first word here, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. I think because we have such a limited exposure to the Hebrew language, and again, we're not experts in that, and nor have I been, by the way, and I've not been able to, you know, been helpful over the years in that. But in studying this, it is actually quite interesting that Elohim, I think we, you've maybe heard this before, Elohim, if you see a Hebrew word with I am on the end of it, it's a plural word. But some plural words uh, can be used both singularly and plural in the Hebrew language, like deer in the English language. Right. So that uh, uh, a, a deer or many deer, for, for example. And Elohim uh, is, is being used here of the most high God is being used of Yahweh. So Elohim has taken his place in his divine council, And in the midst of the plural Elohim, he now holds judgment. Huh, well, what do we do with that? Right. Because it's Elohim, doesn't Elohim mean God. All right, that's what we'll get to in a minute. Elohim doesn't just mean God. And if you can get past that for a minute, uh, we'll begin to appreciate all that's going on among all of the nations, all of the Gentiles, and these lesser divine beings that have influence over them. All right? Okay. It's, it's going to continue to get crazy here. In Psalm 82, the, the whole psalm is, is rather remarkable, um, where, where it does say, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. I'm going to read on, even though I'm, I'm going to go through verses two through five here. And here's what He says to that divine council: God says, "How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked?" See what God is doing here? He's talking to the divine council of these Elohim and saying to them, "You're doing wrong. Why are you judging unjustly? Why are you showing partiality to the wicked?" Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Why is that? Because God, who had kind of entrusted responsibility to his divine counsel, is now sorely disappointed that they have not done right by the nations that they were supposed to have influence over. Um, And so then he says to them after that, I said, you are gods, Elohim, sons of the most high, sons of God. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalm concludes with... Well, let let me discuss that for a second. God says to them, You are Elohim, sons of the Most High. You know, when Paul talks about God in in Acts 17, he's he's got a reference to all of this in Acts 17 when he's before the Areopagus. Paul says that from one man, God made every nation of earth, right? And, And he says that when God made men, he made them all sons of God. So all that God has created in different contexts are referred to as sons of god now of course we know jesus is the son of god the unique one and only unique representation of god himself Uh, there's there's no obscuring that by by also saying that other beings that god has created whether in the heavenly realms or the earthly realms are also considered to be sons of God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, says that, that that if you if, if, if in the Beatitudes that you will be like sons of God. Uh, so again, don't allow that phrase to kind of throw you too much, uh, but but to recognize that the phrase just to be sons of God is that these are ones that God has 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 created. These are ones that God has made. Uh, again, Jesus in being the son of God, is not created or made, however. uh, And so he holds a very special place with that. Okay, moving on though. He he says that even though you have this divine status, even though you resign in the heavenly realms, you're going to come under subject to judgment and you will ultimately die like, like mortals and you will fall. You will fall like any prince, even though these divine beings are sometimes called princes and principalities. And then finally... Uh, the, the psalmist says, Arise, O God! Now the psalmist is appealing to God. Arise, O God! Judge the earth! For you shall inherit all the nations. That's a mind-blowing concept to a Jew because they did not consider that God had all the nations, just Israel. Israel was his portion. All the other nations, well, that's why they were bowing down to Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech or Chemosh, uh, all of these other kind of corruptions of, of divine beings. We don't know if they were on the council of God or not. That's never been, been clear in any literature. But, but somehow or another, these nations be, began to make idols to these other gods that had dominion over them. Big deal. Big deal that, that this is the case. By the way, you think, well, yes, but weren't they just empty idols? Weren't they just blocks of stone? Doesn't Isaiah call them just that? Yeah, but what does Paul say to the corinthians in 1 corinthians 10 18 to 22 about the idols that they worship because yes they're idols but they're not just idols they're idols that have demons behind them they're idols that have something really big and that's why the prohibition against all of this because there is something much bigger much deeper behind it all okay so here's what i want to get to this word elohim in the Bible, is used over 2,000 times. And, and not exclusively for the name of God or, or for the designation of God. Elohim is used from, from, from you name it. It's, it's, it's used of the sons of God are referred to as Elohim. Samuel, when he is raised from the dead by the witch of Endor, he's referred to as an Elohim. Angels are called Elohims, demons, Elohims, goddesses and gods. Uh, Paul uses phrases like princes, principalities, powers, authorities, dominions. All of them are, are also referred to as Elohim. So what is this Elohim then? What does Elohim mean if it doesn't mean God? Elohim is much more of a designation of place and realm than it is of person. Or even characteristics of a person. Elohim doesn't actually even mean that you're godly or good. Elohim just means that you reside in the realm of the heavenly. You are not in the realm of the, of the uh, let's call it corporeal or, or carnal or physical. Uh, and, and Elohim do not reside here. When an Elohim kind of, kind of translates into our realm, sure he takes on... That, that, that sort of fleshliness. But in Elohim, like Saul, uh, Samuel being raised from the dead, or angels or demons, or principalities or princes, or the archangel Michael, or Gabriel, or, all of them all are in the big Venn diagram of Elohim and are just subcomponents of that. The one that is also in there that I didn't include because I didn't want to cause too much confusion, that is supreme over them all, who is the most high Elohim, is Yahweh. And again, because Yahweh is also called the Most High Elohim, don't confuse Elohim with characteristics of godliness in terms of your morality. It it actually has more to do with the realm that you inhabit. Everybody hanging so far? Tuesday night there'll be Q&A. All right, (laughs) moving on. So again, to the Jew, they understood That there was God, most high Elohim, but yet then there are angels and others and princes and principalities. And they understood all that, and they understood that God resided over his divine council. And and think of the some of the images in his divine counsel um, that that we have from the Old Testament. Again, I already mentioned Jeremiah 23, prophets coming before the divine council. Uh, or think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 coming before God in his divine council with other heavenly beings, other Elohim there. Think of the cherubim and the seraphim that, that are there, all Elohim. But somehow or another, there are classes of Elohim. There are, you know, in, in a sense, a, a ranking of Elohim. And it seems as though the highest of all those rankings are the sons of God that sit in the council with God. So, for example, in, in Genesis 1, even when, when God says, uh, let us make man in our image, yeah, we'll look at a Trinitarian view of that. That may not be actually what the Jew would have heard. Uh, a Jew would have heard God before his divine counsel, the, the council that was actually observing God who made heaven and earth according to Job 38. Job 38 says that your divine counsel was there, when, when the earth was created. They rejoiced with you. They sang as the morning stars sang. Again, the divine council was there. So in the rankings of all these Elohim, all these heavenly beings, interestingly, angels are pretty far down. Angels are messenger boys, for the most part, whereas this divine council would be kind of like the senators and the angels are like their pages who run errands back and forth. From one another. Now, that ought to give you pause because one angel, with a swipe of his hand, took out one hundred and eighty five thousand Arameans in the midst of a battle. So, whoa! What it is that, that that we're really considering here and that we don't trifle with as we as we appreciate the fullness of our spiritual battle as it exists among us. So now. With that kind of idea of what the Jews understood of the divine counsel of God, the sons of God, demons, angels, etc. Uh, now, let's take a look at the nations themselves. Uh, because the nations are most clearly defined biblically, and they are established biblically where? In Genesis 11. Right, we Just last, last year, we went through Genesis 11, and we saw the Tower of Babel. And what was it that the nations wanted to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a tower to heaven, not to go up, but to do what? To bring God down. All of the temples of the ancient world, later we will see, even from this example, later we'll see that next to the temple was a ziggurat, or a, a very large uh, kind of vertical building of some sort or another, inviting God to come down uh, so that they could call God down in their pagan uh, ungodly worship of false gods. Now, they all got together. All the nations of the earth got together to build this tower in Babel to, to God. And God decided, whoa, if this is what has come to man, if this is what has happened even after the flood, even after that purification then we're going to have to take another step. And by the way, to a Jewish worldview, this step is what speaks to the depravity of man even more than Genesis 3 and 4. Even more than the fall. To their mind, it was this, this moment. This moment where men decided that they were not going to worship God on His terms but on their terms. That they were not going to be subjected to God, but that they could call God to do their bidding as they wished by building this temple. That temple was basically saying, we can manipulate God and we can make him do what we want. And God says, homie, don't play that. And, and, and God then confused their languages, etc. And, and, and again, this is not about just an ill-fated construction project and language confusion. This episode is at the heart of the Old Testament worldview of every Jew that's in the church in Jerusalem having now been made a Christian. This is critical to to understand what they're going to go through in order to accept Gentiles. So they're scattered. And at this point, most of us kind of look at the story and think nothing more about it. But there are other New Testament passages that speak to this. And the most important of these is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says in verse 8, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Inheritance is a very technical term having to do men with God. Uh, And he says, The Most High God gave the nations, or the Gentiles, their inheritance when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Again, exact same thing Paul says, right? In Acts 17. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That is the divine counsel. That is the, the, the gods that were meant to, to help God as he went about ruling. Did God need a divine counsel? No, he did not. But he decided nonetheless to work with him. Does God need us to evangelize? No, he does not. But he decides to work through us. God is communal. God is relational in that way. He doesn't need community. But he decides nonetheless to be able to allow community. To enjoy the service that they're able to have with him. So here we go. God at, at, at Babel took the nations All 70 of them that are listed there. And and the Jewish mindset is there are 70 nations. And he took the 70 nations, the 70 stripes of Gentiles, and dispersed them. But he did one more thing besides scattering them. He assigned them to the different lesser gods. To the different divine beings who would then have dominion over them. Okay, maybe it's starting to then build to realize why the Jews were so repulsed by Gentiles. It wasn't just what they ate and how they looked. It was the lesser God, the, the rebellious God who was going to die like a man at some point. The, God, the, the lesser gods that did not in any way exercise justice or mercy or righteousness that came over dominion of these nations. Deuteronomy 4.19 says it in another way. Deuteronomy 32 says that God gave the nations to these lesser divine beings. But here's what he says in Deuteronomy 4. Oh, I'm sorry, but one other thing. Look at what verse 9 says. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. While all of the other nations ended up with the the replacements, the second stringers, the corruptions, not Jacob, not Israel. Israel was the Lord's inheritance. Israel was the Lord's portion. That's quite important in their worldview, right? If you're a Jew, You're fired up of this special treasured possession status that you have. Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Nations divided because of their rebellion against Yahweh. Yahweh divides them. And then he assigns them, those nations, to each of these lesser and ultimately corrupted divine beings. Now, Deuteronomy 4 speaks of the incident as well at Babel. And again, because it's so integral, seminal, critical for the jewish worldview i'm going to focus on this for one more time in verse 19 it says and do this I is saying earlier moses is saying earlier to the people do this do what don't bow down to the heavenly host don't bow down to idols why not do that so that you do not lift your eyes toward heaven and observe the sun and the moon and the stars all the hosts of heaven And be led astray and bow down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh, your God, has allotted to all peoples under all of the heaven. Do you see what I'm saying? Those things, those lesser beings, those corruptions of dominion, those objects of worship. In 32, God said, God divided the nations and gave each nation to a corrupted heavenly being. Here he's saying, God divided the nations, and now he's saying it the other way around, saying this was a a, a pure match. God then also took the corrupted heavenly beings, looked at his divine counsel and said, you're with them, you're with them, you're with them, you're with them. That's your nation, that's your nation, that's your nation. So it was made doubly clear, both from God giving the corrupted heavenly beings over to the nations and God giving the nations over to the corrupted heavenly beings. I know I'm belaboring that point, I just want to drive it home to to recognize it from a Jewish mind standpoint. They get picked by Yahweh in the great cosmic playground of world history. They get picked by Yahweh and all the other nations are left to, to wallow in the mess and the corruption of these other heavenly beings. Uh, these things, again, these, these lesser things, God has allotted. I, I just already mentioned that. Let me not belabor that slide. Um, in First Samuel 26, David has a lament when he, but due to a, a variety of, of difficulties with Saul, ends up out of the territory of Israel. Now, for the nations, not only that Yahweh is their portion and they are Yahweh's portion, but the land and the boundaries of the land itself also are associated with either Yahweh or those lesser heavenly beings. So for, for example, if you're up in Babel, well then Marduk or, or some other lesser God would be a, a God that would hold sway if you're in that land. But if you're in Israel, in the ground of Israel, Well, there is where Yahweh has supreme. Now, David is sent over into Philistia and he says, they have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance. What is the Lord's inheritance? Both the territory of Israel and the people of Israel and have said, go serve other gods. And David is in turmoil over that. But does not David understand that God is not defined by any physical boundaries? Yes and no. We know that now, but a Jewish mindset at the time actually restricted, in their mindset, God to those physical boundaries, as did the other nations, restricted the work of their God to their physical boundaries as well. Matter of fact, you see it interestingly. Hold on, in the story of Naaman in Second Kings five, Naaman is a is a great general from Assyria, I believe, and he comes down and is healed by a prophet of Yahweh in Israel, among the people of Israel, among Yahweh's portion. So this other guy from another nation, under a God of another corruption, comes in, but here's what he says. He says, alright, Naaman, Naaman says this, alright, can you help me, Elisha, when I go back to my people? And if not, then let me do this. Give me as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Do you see the depth of the mindset here? Whether it's a Jewish mindset or even an Assyrian mindset or any other nation mindset. If I'm going to be able to make sacrifice to Yahweh, I need the land of Yahweh. And so I've got to go back. But if I go back, can you give me enough land that two mules can carry. So that when I go back, I don't know what he does with it. Maybe sets up a a little victory garden of soil there where he can bow down and worship Yahweh. But it was that ingrained. that if you lived in that territory, you were of that nation, of those people, with that corrupted God. And so when the gospel extends out of the borders of Israel, it's going to be a really big deal because of the Jewish mindset of what they can and, and cannot do. In Daniel, you get this a few times over. Daniel is praying, and as he prays, Gabriel says, you know, as soon as you began praying, Daniel, we heard your prayer. Who's the we? I guess it's part of the divine council. Now, Gabriel, as amazing as he is, whoosh, arrives in swift flight, right? Even as he's still praying. but he says, by the way, Gabriel, even an archangel of Gabriel, is still a messenger boy compared to the other heavenly beings. Anyway, he arrives to Daniel, and here's what he says. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the prince of Persia. The king of Persia says here, "This is a reference not to the physical king of Persia stopping an angel. This is the whatever the lesser god of the divine council who has dominion over Persia, stopping the 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 angel Gabriel, because again the 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 divine council son of God corrupted heavenly being w- would actually have have much more." position and authority than an angel because angels were lesser and he was able to put up a block and it required the archangel Michael coming and helping him to him to be kind of set free from that turmoil, that quagmire and then come in swift flight to Daniel to help give him the encouragement of all that went on with that. Later on, he'll even speak of, of another prince and in that case he says in, uh, in verse 20, a little further down, he says, Do you know why I have come to you soon? I will return to fight against the Prince of Persia. And when I go, the Prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them, except Michael, your Prince what like how freaky deaky is that? Like what is really going on? What is this spiritual warfare of which the Bible speaks? How much is really going on when we just lift our eyes to be able to actually see it all? Wow. Wow. But what is my bent? My bent is material. My, my bent is worldly. I don't like to think about those things. And if I can have a material explanation to explain even passages like this away, I run to them rather than embrace the fullness of the Jewish worldview which was one that clearly understood of the spiritual realm, the spiritual battle, the spiritual hierarchy and the most high God Yahweh with, with supremacy over it all. But nonetheless, allows the nations to have gone their way, but because of no merit in Abraham or no merit in, in Israel, chose Israel and now Israel is going to be blessed and going to be blessed fully with, with the fulfillment of all of this. And the fulfillment comes in Jesus. Jesus comes to send the Spirit to reverse Babel. Think about Acts chapter 2. We just studied it a few months ago. Think about all that goes on there. At Babel, all the nations couldn't understand one another. At Babel, they were trying to manipulate God coming down to them. At Babel, they wanted to join together and be able to uh, have, have God and make a name for themselves. At Acts, Jesus is the one who sends God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who gathers the nations by allowing them all to understand the word of God in their own respective language. Jesus is now showing that the worldview that all the Jews have held so dear, that we're the the special one, we're the special precious possession, all of that, is really going to be, now, transcended, by the work, of, God the Son, and God the Spirit. By that work, all of it is going to be reversed. I know, You gave lip service to Abraham being a blessing to all nations. I know Jews that you thought, yeah, it's a nice phrase, but that's not really going to happen because those nations are putrid and reviling and revolting against God. That'll never happen. But it's why this passage ends with, whoa. So God has granted even to the Gentiles, even to the nations, repentance leading unto life. Who could have ever thought, such a thing would have, would have really occurred. Jesus says in Acts 1 to, to, to the 12, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but even to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Another way of saying the Gentiles, to the nations. They must have thought, ah. Oh, I don't know how that's going to happen, but let's just focus on the stuff that we know, right? Let's just focus on Jerusalem, Judea, and see where it goes from there. And all throughout the book of Acts, God is only giving the apostles and the the uh, disciples just enough to do a step at a time. They don't know the full story because it's so mind-blowing to them to know the full story. That's why it says, run up to the chariot. Okay, now ask him if he understands what he's reading. Okay, now go ahead. I mean, step by step by step by God to help people, even for Peter, step by step by step to even be able to embrace the bigness of what's about to go down here. But look closely at what Jesus' plan has always been. All authority. That word authority is the word that Paul uses when he talks about all of the principalities, the powers, the authorities, and dominions. Of this evil age. All spiritual authority. Is what Paul has in mind. When he says about this spiritual warfare that we're in. Jesus uses that word. Rather deliberately. To say to them. All right. All authority. In heaven. In the heavenly realm among the Elohim. Or in the earthly realm. Among the earthlings. Has been given to me. Therefore go and discipleize. The nations. The Gentiles. Oh, and one last thing, in case you're tempted to build some sort of a ziggurat or a tower, don't even think about it. I'm going to be with you always. As you go into each land, as you go into each new territory, I am with you always. I love what Paul says here. He says, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, not just to the nations. Who is it made known to? The Elohim to the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms. What you do echoes throughout the Elohim. What you do makes a massive difference in the spiritual realm. You do not wage war as the world wages war, but the weapons that you fight with have divine power to tear down strongholds, rulers, authorities, Even in the heavenly realms. And everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of Jesus. And his humble atonement for all the nations. Including his precious possession, the Jews. Now, as you fight. As you make this difference. As you engage. As Gentiles and Jews come together. Paul is saying, especially about Jews and Gentiles coming together in unity. You're sending a message. You're sending a message to the rest of the divine beings. That... Your time is coming. You will die like men. You will be condemned as well. And right now, even your possession, your nations, you're losing them even now. How intense is that? And that as we continue to to come together, Jew and Gentile, black and white, old, young, educated, -educated, non-educated, all of the different strata, as all of that comes together we're sending a message in the heavenly realms that the division that that they used to be able to gain some sort of an upper hand no longer can be used for true followers of Jesus. What you do echoes more ways than you know. Have you ever like kind of looked at a YouTube channel that had let's say 10 million subscribers and thought, wow, that person's able to like reach a lot of people. I wonder if I had 10 million subscribers, what I would say. You have billions of subscribers. What you're doing is sending a message throughout the heavenly realm. You're making known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, the manifold wisdom of God. The way that you persevere under suffering, the way that you choose faith rather than fear, The way that you choose a kingdom view instead of a worldview. The way that you choose humility instead of asserting oneself. The way that you serve rather than look to be served. Every one of those things sends a rather powerful message. And I don't know how it's going down at the moment. But I'm sure Michael and Gabriel are fired up that that message is being sent. In whatever kind of spiritual warfare that we're in. And to close with, Paul of course brings it home with, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, and against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When Peter crossed that threshold, it was a whole lot more than weird diet and weird hair color that was going on. It was all of this. And the thought that God would include the Gentiles, God would grant the Gentiles repentance unto life, well, we're living proof, of course, of that. But, but, but for, for all of us, let's live keenly aware of what rare understanding, what rare people we are as God's Yahweh's special possession through Jesus Christ. Let's honor that as we live our lives. And let's send a message to the heavenly realms of massive encouragement. Amen. Let's break to fellowship.